Welcome to Nashville Anthems, a podcast that's determined to get to the bottom of what makes 80s and 90s country music particularly work by closely examining the songs played on satellite radio's 80s and 90s country music station one at a time. Thanks to the band Halfway to Elgin for supplying the theme music for today's episode. Nice job, ladies. Today, I'm going to give my best effort to unpacking Alan Jackson's I'll Try. So, If you haven't already, I hope you'll pause this podcast now and give I'll Try a close listen or two. And now let's get into it. Let's begin, as always, by giving credit where credit is due. Alan Jackson wrote and recorded I'll Try in 1995 and released it as a single in early 1996. The single was produced by Keith Stigall, and it became yet another Jackson number one hit, something he was quite used to by then. The song didn't appear on a studio album per se, but was included on Jackson's 1995 Greatest Hits album as new material. Remember when artists used to do that? It seemed like kind of a sneaky way to force collectors who didn't otherwise need it to buy the compilation album, but I'm cynical. The same holds for Diamond Rio's How Your Love Makes Me Feel, by the way, a song we looked at right before our previous Alan Jackson song, Living on Love. So the other new song on this particular Jackson compilation was actually one I remembered a lot better then I remembered I'll Try for whatever reason. And that's his cover of George Jones's Tall, Tall Trees. We won't necessarily get into it much in this episode because I'm not quite able to put my finger on it, but I have to say there is something George Jonesy to me about I'll Try. Jackson's appreciation for George Jones is, of course, no secret. In addition to his cover of Tall, Tall Trees, Jackson, of course, expresses an explicit preference for George Jones in the song Don't Rock the Jukebox. So you've got at least a couple of very concrete bits of evidence there. But enough about George Jones. I'm sure we'll get to him soon enough. Let's talk about I'll Try. So there are three adjectives that I think describe this song, two of which, surely not coincidentally, we essentially discussed 10 episodes ago in the aforementioned previous Alan Jackson episode, the one on Living on Love. It's the most popular episode of Nashville Anthems as of this recording, by the way. How about that? Anyway, those adjectives that I'm going to use to describe I'll Try are simple, earnest, and meager. So first off, I'll Try is a simple song, and that simplicity centers on a few things, again, not coincidentally, the same simple elements that we discussed in the Living on Love episode. The first is that the song is musically simple. It employs three chords, the classic one, four, five, with nary a hint of any others. Three chords and the truth, but we'll get into that truth part later on. So the chords progress in a relentless, easy, predictable pattern of one... And the chord changes every two beats like that with very little variation. They sound like chord changes you would make if you had just whipped out your acoustic guitar and started humming a melody while strumming the first thing that came to mind. And in all likelihood, that's just what happened when Alan Jackson wrote this song. It certainly sounds that way. The song even has a very simple structure. It's just first chorus, first chorus. There is a bridge, a concept we talked about a lot in the That's What I Get for Loving You episode. By the way, that's not one of my most popular ones, so I encourage you to go back and listen to that one if you missed it the first go-round. 
Anyway, that bridge is a bit of a mild curveball, but the bridge itself is quite simple. And structurally, just rounding out that structure, the song finishes with a chorus and a simple tag. So this is just your basic three-chord country song. No musical curveballs or even really much of a suggestion of any. So, secondly, regarding simplicity, I think the song is simple in its straightforward lyrics. So, you'll notice, and we've seen this a lot so far in this project, that the lyrics contain no irony, no complicated diction, only the slightest little tinge of a metaphor with the mention of sunshine versus rain. The lack of irony is especially noteworthy here because of the song's message, and we'll get more into this in a moment, but close your eyes for a moment and imagine I'll try, not the song per se, but the song's overall message. Not as an Alan Jackson song, but as a Brad Paisley song. If you do that, the protagonist turns from the sincere simpleton of Randy Travis's Deeper Than the Holler to the lovable loser of I'm Gonna Miss Her. The point being, the message of this song really flirts with being tongue-in-cheek. It's right on the brink, yet somehow it doesn't feel like it. So, either Alan Jackson is playing the most complete possible irony mind trick on us, or... I'll try's lyrics mean exactly what they say and are meant to be taken at face value. So that's why I say these lyrics are straightforward and simple. Well, finally, there is something of a counterpoint to all the simplicity, and it's that the musical arrangement skews not simple, not spare, but lush. It's one of those patterns we keep looking for and seeing on this podcast. Most of the songs we've examined so far employ lots of instruments in their arrangements. And I'll Try is no exception to this. This is a song that isn't shy about making sure everyone has an instrument in his or her hand, but it's all heavily arranged, such that those instruments are all deliberately placed and layered. Here's the lineup card. You have a typical country rhythm section of bass, drums, and acoustic rhythm guitar. There's also piano. Quite a bit of it in this song is particularly prominent. You have electric lead guitar. There's fiddle, and there is pedal steel. We've both felt love We've both felt pain I'll take the sunshine Over the rain Take my hand So there are a lot of instruments, but what each instrument plays is quite simple. This is by no means the instrumental showcase that Linda was. Instead, everything is understated, with the rhythm section not doing anything particularly ear-grabbing. And each of the four color instruments, that'd be the piano, lead guitar, fiddle, and steel guitar, playing fairly sparse, deliberate parts. The piano maybe puts a little more pizzazz into the part than the others, but it still doesn't feel at all showy, like the guitars in Linda were, for example, or what we've observed in some of the Garth Brooks material we've covered. That said, the arrangement is quite full, as in, the sum of these simple individual parts is not itself simple. There's a lot going on instrumentally here, and it fills the ear in a way that, if I can be so bold, is a little disjointed. I think the instrumental arrangement doesn't quite work in this song, frankly, because the simplicity of everything else about the song really begs for simpler instrumentation. Maybe just one of those four melodic instruments, the piano, electric guitar, fiddle, and steel, would have been more fitting than all four. But remember that we've seen a lot of this, such that it feels like a defining feature of at least 90s country music, lots of instruments. And I'd argue that it typically works well, such that for my money, it seems to be part of that secret sauce this podcast is trying to reverse engineer 
Even if it's a weird fit on this song. Hmm. Let's keep going. The second key feature of this song, the second adjective that I think describes it, is that truth part of the three chords and the truth formula that we mentioned earlier. And here, I think that truth is best described with the adjective earnest. Know what I mean? Now, this is an Alan Jackson hallmark, so not surprisingly, we talked about this idea of earnestness in the Living on Love episode. In that episode, we more called it authenticity, authenticity that flowed from Jackson's natural, honest-sounding delivery. And you had that here, too. But this one comes at it with more personal conviction, more skin in the game, if you will. This is in first person versus Living on Love, which was in third person. So it's the view from within versus the view from outside such that we move from something that felt a little idealistic in Living on Love, okay, maybe a lot idealistic in Living on Love, to something that's more relatable in I'll Try. And we're back to what we've certainly identified as a common characteristic of at least 90s countries so far, a believable expression of feelings about a relatable situation with the believability and relatability tied to the specificity. To name a few of those specifics in I'll Try... This is not merely a love song, but specifically a love song about a couple who already have a history, who are considering long-term commitment, presumably marriage, because he says talking about forever in that first verse. And you know there's a history because there's a reference that not only do they both know it's not easy to be together, but the very confidence this first-person narrator has in that statement implies that he was there when both of them learned that lesson. So, there's a history here, but it's not necessarily an awful history, not even necessarily a red flag regarding their current decision point. It just wasn't easy, but that doesn't mean it was a constant struggle either. So, the narrator makes a three-word statement, and there's a lot in those three words. The narrator says, I'm not scared. But, of course, volunteering that you're not scared kind of makes it sound like you are scared, or at least that you're thinking about being scared. Otherwise, why would you have even said it? And maybe it did cross this narrator's mind to be scared, but the bottom line is what he says at face value. So again, it's not the extreme of a major red flag. There are just some questions, some doubts, maybe some decision point that has to be worked through here. So this history was enough to give this couple pause, enough to make them stop at this moment and take inventory before they cross this point of no return. And that's pretty relatable, right? It sounds real in the very absence of drama and presence of grounded specificity. We can't talk about the earnestness of this Alan Jackson song without talking about the earnestness of Alan Jackson's delivery because that's really the Jackson Hallmark that I mentioned earlier. Now, we talked about this in more detail in the Living on Love episode, so let me just highlight a couple of things from that discussion, because it all applies to I'll Try. One, Alan Jackson's delivery is conversational. It's right on the brink of speaking rather than singing. He sounds like your uncle telling you a story much more than he sounds like a celebrity performing in a sports arena. Here we are Talking about forever. So that's down-to-earth, attainable, and thus relatable. A second, Jackson's delivery is unaffected. And here's that je ne sais quoi, right? There's something about Alan Jackson that never sounds pretentious or fake 
or like he's reaching far outside his real life experience to tell this story. It's like he's right in the sweet spot emotionally. More passion, and he would sound like an actor on a stage. Less, and he would sound like a television news anchor. I'm not perfect, just another man. But I will give you all that I am. How much of that is intentional or how much of that is natural, I guess we'll never know for sure. But to me, it's believable that it's believable. It doesn't sound like he's trying to sound like he's singing from the heart. It just sounds like he's singing from the heart. Okay, well, finally, let's zero in a little more on part of that earnestness formula and talk about exactly what the alleged believable expression of feeling in this song is. And that brings us to our last adjective that I think describes I'll try, and that is maybe one you weren't expecting. Meager. Now, it will depend on your point of view how much you're with me on this one. I discussed it with Melton's wife, and she pushed back on my opinion here, because there is really more than one way to understand exactly what Jackson is promising to try to do here. Explicitly, he says he'll try to love only you and to be true. But what does that mean exactly? Where is this line that he promises to all shucks do his darndest not to cross? I read this as a very physical promise. My reaction is, you'll try to be true? Have you tried not sleeping with other women? That might work. And I think that's a fair reading. Maybe the most straightforward and therefore attractive, given the simplicity and straightforwardness of the song that we spoke about earlier. But admittedly, that bar could be lower. If he's really talking about staying something like emotionally true, admittedly, that's going to be more difficult to do than my perhaps more cynical, physical understanding. But either way, I have to say, I'm personally a little underwhelmed. This protagonist sounds less powerful, more like a victim than I contend he should. Think of the lovable loser in Long Neck Bottle. Let go my hand? One could imagine Jackson's narrator saying, let go my hotel room key. This is the pathetic, empty promise maker in Jackson's someday, much more than the ambitious, determined dream chaser of chasing that neon rainbow. Where is the personal responsibility, conservative value that permeated living on love? You'll try? Do or do not, Mr. Jackson. Wouldn't you love to know how he'd react if his beloved said the same thing back to him, that she'd try to be faithful to him? This is a promise that may sound different when you hear it versus when you say it. Yeah, I'm not impressed. But I do appreciate that it's believable. Back to our previous point, the song is earnest, and it's it's meagerness that keeps I'll Try small and contained such that its expression of feeling, questionable though it may be, isn't asking us to work to suspend disbelief. Now, what I'm calling I'll Try's meagerness shows up in the melody also, not just the lyrics. There are a lot of fifths in this melody. That's the fifth degree of the chord. Now, this song is in the key of F-sharp, or G-flat, if you prefer, six of one, half-dozen of the other. So, the fifth of the tonic chord is a C-sharp. Some key places that note shows up in the melody. It's the first note sung, because it's the first note of the verses. It's down here. A lowish, but still quite comfortable note for most men. Here we are. 
And it's also the big, in quotes, because it's not that big, that's kind of the point, the big note in the chorus, the one Jackson sustains, I'll try, it's an octave higher up here. Still comfortable for most men, clearly including Alan Jackson. And I'm so, those two C-sharps pretty much bracket the melody in terms of pitch range. Jackson goes a little lower in the verses and sometimes a little higher in the choruses, but essentially those notes fix the melody in a super comfortable range for baritone like Alan Jackson. That probably explains the key too. F-sharp is an odd key. Six sharps in the key signature. That's as many sharps as you can have in a key without kind of doubling back and reducing flats rather than adding sharps. So you're at peak possible black keys on the piano here, and you've even got an E-sharp sitting around in there to trip your fingers up when you play along with this one, as I can attest to from personal experience. And by the way, all this holds true if you prefer to think of the key as G-flat versus F-sharp. Just change what I said about sharps to flats and vice versa. But if you're with me this far, you probably already knew that. The point is, this key almost had to have been chosen to situate the vocals in a comfortable range for Jackson. This reminds me very much of How Can I Help You Say Goodbye, which was in another odd, sharp-heavy key that was the key of B. And as we kind of, the point we kind of made there is it's hard to imagine the key of B being chosen for a reason other than vocal range. And that song is in a very comfortable alto range, not a vocal stretch pitch-wise for Patti Loveless at all. That's the point we made in that episode. And the same is true here for Alan Jackson. Very comfortable range, not a stretch vocally in terms of pitch I mean, I guarantee Alan Jackson did not sit with his acoustic guitar and write this song in F-sharp. Maybe he wrote it in G and then lowered it. Maybe he wrote it in E and then raised it. But he didn't write it in F-sharp. And I say that because not only are those keys much better guitar keys, but the song's overall range is narrow enough that it was possible to make those adjustments to make one end of the range more comfortable without really losing any comfortability on the other end of the range. It's a meager vocal range, as the protagonist isn't stretching himself to make this meager promise, so the singer isn't stretching himself to deliver it in song. But back to the idea of fifths, that the melody spends so much time on fifths, on C sharps in the key of F sharp, contributes to that feeling of meagerness. I argue that of the three degrees that make up a simple chord triad like these, the first, the third, and the fifth, the fifth is the weakest. The first degree is certainly the strongest. It's the name of the chord. The very identity of the chord is set by this degree. It's the one the bass guitar plays. It's the one the left hand on the piano plays. It's the one the melody almost always ends on, and it's the foundation upon which the chord is built. The third degree is one we've talked about a lot on this podcast because it has the most color, the most sauce. Playing with and altering the pitch of the third chord degree can make the chord minor versus major. It can suspend the chord. It can even bluesify the chord, if you will, as we talked about a lot. But the fifth degree is kind of along for the ride. It doesn't really contribute much to the identity or function of the chord just fills it out. To illustrate what I mean, I'm going to play some F-sharp chords with one of the chord degrees removed. And when I do that, listen and see which of these chord degrees feels least crucial to defining the chord to you. Here's a normal F-sharp chord. F-sharp, A-sharp, C-sharp, first, third, fifth. Here's an F-sharp chord without the first degree. It's like, what am I listening to there, right? Here's one without the third degree. 
That's an open fifth. We talked about those in the rodeo episode. Couldn't resist. And here's one without the fifth degree. See how all of the information about the chord is kind of already contained in the first and third degrees? The fifth is more the cherry on top, but the first and third are the ice cream and sauce. So moreover, melodically, the fifth is kind of the note you settle into if you're not really going for it. At least it can feel that way. This is a little hard to describe, but the first degree is the strong, assertive one. The third is kind of taking that assertive note and raising the bar in a sense. It feels like the note that's over the top of that main one. The fifth, on the other hand, often feels like the one below the main feature. It's playing second fiddle, if you will. Like the note you fell to because you weren't quite putting enough umph into it to get to the first degree. And it's a long way to fall. The gap between the fifth and the first is the largest in the triad. So did you really try, vocalist? If you're on the fifth and want to raise the stakes, you've got to jump up three and a half steps to get to the first degree. So there's kind of lots of space in between that first degree that you may want to get to and the fifth degree where you may end up that your try may land in between such that it has to kind of fall back down to the fifth. And And that's where this melody feels meager. Jackson didn't try. He just sang the safe note, the non-committal fifth, not really near the top of his range. In fact, we have no idea where the top of his range actually is or where the protagonist's commitment to remain faithful might fail him because while he says, I'll try, we don't really hear that in the song's lyrics, melody, or anywhere else. If there's a bona fide attempt here at all, it's a meager one. A word of disclaimer here by way of summary. Nothing I'm saying is a criticism of Jackson's vocals by any means. Quite the opposite, actually. They're perfect for this song. It's a bit of a meager message, as we said, and powerful vocals would not have made sense in it. It's all part of that package that makes I'll Try work. Its simplicity, its earnestness, and yes, its meagerness all contribute to a credible take on a very relatable situation, something Jackson specializes in, as this whole era and genre sort of seem to. So that's all I've got for my try at unpacking this song. And with that, it's time to find out what song will get my meager analysis on the next episode of Nashville Anthems. I'm going to pull up Satellite Radio's 80s and 90s country station right now and see what's playing. We're back to the 80s and we have our first song by... 80s powerhouse, The Judds. The song is Girls' Night Out. I look forward to getting into that one with you in two weeks. In the meantime, you can write me at MeltonMcMainerberry at gmail.com or find this podcast on Instagram. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time. I gotta go. I wanna try something.